Welcome to Sex and Intimacy with Mary Jo Rapini, the place where you can leave your baggage at the door and learn new and exciting ways to keep it hot with the one you love. And don't forget, send me all your questions and comments because I want to talk about them on the air. Send them to maryjoerapini.com or tweet me at maryjoerapini. Okay, hi, this is Mary Jo, and today we're talking about loving your partner through an addiction. And I have two guests to help me today. The first will be a friend and colleague of mine uh, named Carla Schneider and Schmeider. And um, Carla, why don't you go ahead and talk a little bit about yourself so the audience knows who you are. Well, I've been uh, married for 28 years, and um, my husband is a, a recovering alcoholic, and um, it was one of those things uh, you don't realize you're married to if, at first. The signs were probably there. But um, as the years progressed, we have two beautiful children. Right now they're uh, 19 and 21, and um, we worked as a family through it, and my husband, uh, thank God, uh, was able to recover and he has been sober for 13 years. Wow, thanks Carla. And Carla is going to be a catalyst for helping me help all of you listeners. If you are married and in love with someone who is an addict, it's important that you get support from people who have been through it. And Carla is going to share her experience so that you can have an understanding and know better how to tackle this huge problem Um, in your relationship. And my second guest is someone I'm very excited about having. Her name is Mary Wiley. And Mary is a registered nurse and works with addictions and families. And Mary, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit further so that the audience feels like they can relate to you and could talk to you. Yes, I'm Mary Wiley. I am a registered nurse here in Houston, Texas. And I did spent I spent 15 years in the profession dealing with uh, substance abuse. Now I have a ministry called True Journey Ministry where we cater to families who are in the midst of um, uh, the addictive process and they're either trying to sort things out or trying to make some decisions. So we try to give them some insight on what they need to do. So I'm really grateful to be here today. Uh, Hopefully that we could be able to say something to help the world. Oh, I, I just love that. And that's really all of our missions. We want to create a platform where you actually feel so comfortable, just like we're in your kitchen at the kitchen table talking to you. And don't be afraid to tweet us. And I'm at Mary Jo Rapini. You can tweet and we'll pick it up. And at that time, we will answer your question right away. You can also join me on Facebook um, at Mary Jo Rapini. And you can also. Um, email me, and that's maryjoerapini.com. So we're going to get going now, and I wanted to start it just by talking a little bit about what happens with addictions when you are first married or in a relationship with someone. Many times you don't know what the person you're dating or or even if you get married, you don't really know what sorts of addictions 
are in their family because many times the parents forget to tell the kids, oh, by the way, your grandfather was an alcoholic, and that means you have to be careful that you don't continue, that you don't drink because you have the addictive gene and you could very easily turn into an alcoholic. So this is what causes many times alcoholics to be built into a relationship is they always had the underlying um, addiction gene, and they always had somewhat of the family trait, the family socialization. And it's only when they develop stress and they develop hardship in their lives, they're looking for a coping mechanism. And if you came from a family that didn't provide healthy coping mechanisms like, you know, um, yoga or meditation or prayer, then many times you will seek a substance to medicate you. And that substance can be alcohol, it can be food, it can be pornography, it can be shopping. And what's important to understand is just because you may have a married a smoker, that smoker has an addiction just like the alcoholic. Mm -hmm. But the alcoholic's addiction is a little bit more traumatic because it involves everybody. And you could take that further and say, well, a overeater and a smoker, their addiction involves the whole family too. Well, that is true, but the addiction can actually, it's a little bit more lethal when it's acted out because those addicts many times can kill other people. They'll get behind the wheel of a car. And, and not only that, but they are passing on those behaviors that are forever transferred in, into the family. So I wanted to talk a little bit, this is where Carla is really gonna help me because mm -hmm. she's gonna talk about what what exactly her advice is. I, Carla, I want you to share a little bit about you know, what happened in the beginning, how you started noticing it, and then we're just gonna go through the steps of, of how to get out of it. And I'm gonna kind of prompt you because, you know, you helped me write this article, mm -hmm. and, and that way you will be sure that you can explain it further from your point of view because Carla actually walked in the trench. You know, it's one thing for me and uh, myself and Mary to talk about what to do. We're professionals. But when you've actually walked the walk, uh, I think it's a lot more poignant, and I'm sure that you listeners will find it true. So if you will, Carla, just kind of tell us what you noticed. Well, I mean, when you're first married, you don't, um, I didn't really recognize uh, youthful drinking, partying as an addiction. And I drank, you know, we had fun. We, we had, you know, to me, we seemed like normal young people. We were married at 25. But uh, as the parties progressed, my husband didn't have a stop button. And right. I noticed, you know, I would stop at a certain point and he never did. Mm -hmm. And that's when I think I started noticing a problem. And we initially went to counseling um, just to talk about his um, inability to stop. I still wasn't willing to admit it was alcoholism until, uh, you know, with, with counseling, I learned, I learned a lot. And mm -hmm. I know there's a lot of different kind of counseling and people really do need to find the one that suits them. I was not a group counseling person. I tried to go to an Al-Anon meeting, and for me, it just wasn't a fit. But I know there's people. Everybody has a different need level. Right. But for my husband, he. I mean, I. I just noticed that it. 
took up so much of his life. And then the lying began. Was was the counselor helpful in in identifying that yes, this was an addiction? Did she, was she able to tell you both that? No, she really wanted my husband to see it for himself. Mm-hmm. I think that was her end goal. We we tried a couple of different counselors actually. Uh, the first one, I got angry and didn't want to go back, but his words honestly were the biggest drivers for me. He's the one who said, no matter what, he is the parent the parent of your children. So even if you think you can leave him and walk away from the problem, you can't. And at the time he told me that, I guess I wasn't ready to hear it because I just switched counselors. Now, I did find another one I really liked, mm-hmm. but those words were my driving force to try to make it work more than anything. And, and Carla, I love that because I think what happens a lot of times is, you know, couples aren't getting along, they're married, and they somehow have an illusion that if I divorce this person, I don't have to deal with this anymore. And nothing could be further from the truth because once you have children with someone, you are forever, ever, ever involved in their lives. Those children keep keep having things happen that include both of you. And you know, that child's going to get married, that child's going to finish school, that child's going to graduate from kindergarten. All these all these passages, it makes it more difficult to to not work it out, actually. And but almost more than that, it's what is happening to my children when I'm not in that house. See, I love I, that. That's what I mm-hmm. thought about more than anything was, uh, would he drive with them? Would they? Where would they end up? Who would? Who would else? Who else would be in the house? Those. I mean, I'm not saying everyone should stay. But if my husband didn't hit me, didn't do anything like that, it was he just drank. Right. So I could deal with that, mm-hmm. and and uh, he then I was also lucky that he he wanted to save the marriage too. He right. became a partner in that. Right. And Mary, if you can just interject here, how likely is that when someone becomes an alcoholic? or addicted to some substance, how likely is it that they will commit to the relationship so that they can overcome their problem? Well, Mary Jo, this is the interesting thing for me, and I I read this story, Carla's story last night, and I looked at that, and I looked at all of the positive properties that the marriage had. They both were willing to work on uh, saving the marriage. She was very insightful about what the addict- addiction was doing to the family life. She had a lot of insight. What happens in most cases is that the enabler becomes blind to the reality of what's going on and they try to compensate, which puts the marriage, there's, there's, there, I, I need you to be sick. I need you to be right here so that I can take care of you. But she was not willing to do that. She was willing to open up. He was willing to open up, which is something that that's really difficult to get. And then the other thing is that she said he never was violent. So that gave her room to try to look at what can I salvage? Are you willing to work with me to salvage? And apparently he was. And a lot of times, you know, that's a blessing from God because a lot of times you don't get that. Right. A lot of times you really don't get that. A lot of times you go to bed frightened, you wake up frightened, and um, 
you just don't get that. You don't get that. Is the is the spouse of the um, addicted person usually the number one enabler? No, sometimes it's the mother, the you know mm. the mother-in-law. Sometimes it's it's uh, other people. It's other people that badger you into taking on a position of an enabler. They want you. Okay, you need to. You know, he's a good person. She's a good person. Uh, you're just being evil. You're just not. You're not helping. If you were just better, you know. And so then you begin to beat yourself up because you have all this outside. Uh, information coming at you saying okay if you would do better he would get better but that's not the case each individual that has an addictive process going has to want to do better you right. know so uh she had that right. and then she was able to give him healthy support most of the time the support is unhealthy but she was able to give him healthy support and not uh, pretend that he was not addicted. Okay, but what can we do together and what can we do individually to make this work? Right. So uh, the chief enabler may be anybody. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I think what's really important for all of you listeners is to understand that if you are keeping this a secret, you are an enabler. In other words, I think every instinct inside of you is going to want to keep it a secret. Every alarm in you is going to say, I cannot share this problem because other people will think less of me and my spouse. That's the, that's the worst thing you can act on. In fact, do the opposite in that case and start talking about it. Because if you can talk about it, you actually are going to be able to possibly help your partner seek help. So Carla, that when you were talking um, about your main points of helping, the first thing you had mentioned is being supportive, but don't be an enabler. How, how would that look? Well, I... I supported him in when he wanted to go when to go to counseling. Mm -hmm. First of all, we were I was very aggressive in getting him there, and he agreed to it because he knew, you know, it it was required. And but I didn't I didn't ever try to cover for him. I didn't ever try to. Did you tell your parents? Oh yes, my parents okay. knew. Yeah. Well, see, I also have alcoholism in my family. It isn't in my immediate family. It was my grandfather, so I kind of grew up recognizing it a little mm. bit. Although, in the case of my grandfather, it was pretty swept under the rug. We didn't really talk about it until I was much older, and he'd already passed away. And we found out, you know, why why certain things happened when I was a kid. And my and my husband's uh, mother uh, was an alcoholic, and she died of an illness related to that but so I don't know I don't know why I, I think I didn't recognize it in him because it was one of those things you we didn't talk about in our youth maybe if I had talked more about it I would have recognized it earlier in him um, and I hope my kids are that way we still talk to our kids about the dangers of drinking and the danger, just recognizing that it's in the family and that you have to be aware. Right. And you said here that you, you tried to be honest with the family and friends about the recovery mm -hmm. when, when you guys decided then to do that, that he was going to go away. He actually went away. Is that right? Right. Yeah. How, how did you decide that? Or, Well, I just decided I was never going to, it, it was nothing to cover up. It was what it was. And right. I just decided it, it, people were, I 
think almost everybody has some kind of addiction in their family in one way or another. I do Maybe too. smoking, yeah. drinking, I do too. drugs, yeah. something like that. And I think if you just, it is what it is. You just, it. I wasn't, didn't make a huge deal of it. I just recognized it as it's a matter of fact. And I like that you said it, that, that you felt there was a stigma on it and you refused for your family's sake to accept that in, and that you also told people, listen, it isn't contagious, <laughs> it's, it's in his genes. Mm-hmm. And I love that because right away that tells other people that you are strong, like you're, you're going to attack this like any disease you would go after, you would seek the treatment that needed to be done. Well, in fact, the light bulb that went off for him was, uh, they explained it to him as relating it to an allergy, a mm-hmm. severe allergy. So you have an allergic reaction to alcohol that that is a different reaction than everybody else has. So, so just like some people can eat peanuts and some people can't, some people can drink and some people can't. And that was the one thing he needed to, it just, the, the light bulb went off for him when, okay. he, when he heard that in, in um, rehab. Well, you know, you hear some people for their alcoholism, what they'll do is they'll join Alcohols Anonymous, but they won't be put in a treatment facility. I, I'm curious how you make that choice. Like for any of our listeners, how would they know what to do? Well, in his case, the counselor recommended oh, okay. it. His case, and it was a, it wasn't an overnight process. It was a couple of years mm-hmm. of counseling. When he, his problem was uh, because his mother was an alcoholic. He would, um, when things were going really well, that's when I knew he was going to fall off the wagon. Mm-hmm. He would do well for a while. Then things would just be going so well. He didn't felt feel like he deserved it, exactly. so he would exactly. he would do something to sabotage the good part of our life, and he had to learn to accept that he deserved happiness, and that was a big part for him. Wow, is that is that normal, Mary? What what hap- I mean, what is oh, that thinking? Generally, we have to look at as she said that the addictive process is genetic, and it starts, you know on back okay so if that pattern is going on that's what you learn to live with you learn to live with chaos and you can't adjust to peace you can't adjust to calm just like a person who's been in a state of calm cannot adjust to chaos and so when things are going along fine then the the thought pattern becomes okay something's going to happen so I need to hurry up and make it happen and then when it happens I knew it was going to happen so this gives you another reason to drink but I'd like to say uh, you know we're saying that the addictive process is genetic but also we need to look at in a lot of cases is that it's traumatic and it uh, it is a symptom of the problem so in this case, I would say, because he was able to work his, his way out of it without a lot of violence, without a lot of abusiveness, just drunk. I'm just drunk. That is a, that a genetic process. But when you look at people who are violent, when you look at people who are um, controlling and they're using, uh, you need to look at traumatic incidences um, back in the family of origin. So there are just a lot of ways to look at the addictive process. I just can't even, I just can't get over her story because it just amazes me uh, that 
her insight is just phenomenal because most people don't have it. I agree. Well, you know, I and I'm seeing now, and Mary, this will probably be something you can address. Um, a lot of the soldiers coming back, they're medicating with alcohol to cover up signs of the post-traumatic stress. stress. Exactly. And these are GIs that basically these soldiers, when they do the case history, they find that they're they didn't have chaos in their family, and they didn't necessarily have a genetic link. Mm-hmm. What they're doing is they're numbing, numbing. because they, they realize they can't come back and be married and have kids and act like this. So one thing they do to calm them down and keep prevent the dreams and the flashbacks is they're drinking because mm-hmm. it helps numb them. And mm-hmm. it's, it's easier than going to the doctor and getting a prescription for antidepressants per se or anti-anxiety mm-hmm. pills. So would that be another um, population maybe that, would that be one of the things you're talking about, one of the groups that? That's one of the groups I'm talking about. Another group is the elderly. People don't realize how many elderly people are now addicted, and they're addicted to painkillers because they're finding out that the pain medication will keep them from dealing with the loss that they have. You know, after I've had a stroke, if I come back to the stroke and my mind is clear, but I've lost the use of my arm or my leg, that's uh, a sort of impending uh, doom. Uh, okay, you, so they medicate now. So it's it's just addiction is just an issue. It's a lot of it's in the closet, and then there's a lot of that's on the on the table. And we as a society do we try to pretend like it's not there. Well, that's right. And I, you know, I keep one of the things I was so fascinated with Carla's story is as the spouse, she actually did give up when she brought him home again. She basically made her home an alcohol free zone. And I don't know of a lot of people that could do that right now because alcohol has become such a part of our society. I mean, even at lunchtime, people will come over and they'll say, oh, Mm. should we have a glass of wine? And you're thinking it's only 11 a.m. Right. That's okay, because it's socially acceptable. And we don't think about how just those casual occurrences can start a process for someone who is using it. Or if our friend was drinking at lunchtime, most of us would not take the extra step and say, you know, I've noticed you're drinking a lot. Are you okay? Can Is there something I can help you with? Because we would just go, they just have a glass, they just like wine. You know, they have a couple glasses a day and it's okay. But now, Carla, going further, I just wanted to talk a little bit about um, all the steps you had recommended. And one of those you were saying that I really like because I work a lot with kids is just the fact that you were very open with your kids. You actually took them to the treatment facility to see your husband, and then you kept the conversation going as well. Well, that's right, because, um, you know, the kids, whether they they articulate it or not, the kids know that they're what is happening in the house. And they're mostly going to react to it, as you said, that they they see it, they're going to react to it one way or the other, whether you want to talk about it or not. So I just made the decision to in, involve the children at the time. They were quite young. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think they were four and six. And so we went to the facility together and, you know, I was very protective, obviously, of them so they didn't, but there was nothing they were going to see that was was bad. And I explained to them, I didn't go into great detail about what was going on with their father. They wouldn't have understood it, but, you know, that he, 
he had a problem and he was taking care of it and he was getting himself better and you know always always tried to stay positive I did try not to ever talk badly about their father in front of them oh, that's great. Um, but you know at I also noticed at one point when things were before he went into rehab that we as a family were living around him <laughs> he would drink a lot sitting in his chair and be basically passed out and me and the kids were going on about our lives as if he wasn't even there wow. and then I realized that has to be having an effect on them because they were so used to dad being passed out in the chair hmm. that they it became part of part of the furniture so basically he was already um, acting in the addictive mode like he was no longer being a father right yeah and especially during those times and you know it was always in the evening he was a functioning alcoholic like mm -hmm. many people are he would go to work during the day mm -hmm. but drink at night and and like I said he'd be sitting in his chair after a few drinks and it was a few that would be mostly several drinks to anybody else mm -hmm. his his answer was his sneak was that you know he'd make one drink but it would be almost straight mm -hmm. and it would be like a big gulp size oh okay. <laughs> so yeah that's the the, the five drinks because you would count I, you know if he caught if mm -hmm. i caught him if i was counting them he would reduce the number of drinks mm -hmm. the most clever was uh, a man my husband met in rehab who hid his alcohol in a he bought a new hose brand new <laughs> garden hose hung it up in his garage and he capped off one end of it and he could fill a fifth of a bottle in mm -hmm. the hose so when he'd go out in the garage to do whatever chores his wife wouldn't think anything of it and he'd go empty his hose into whatever he was drinking and wow. that's how he drank so alcoholics like any addict are very so very sneaky they really they'll, they'll lie and they'll cheat and then they steal. put it back on you they mm -hmm. try to make mm -hmm. it you're the problem. You're, if, if it weren't for you, they wouldn't drink. Yes. I've heard that more than once. Yeah. <laughs> or anything, you know, you're the one who's, who's, who's the problem. You're mm -hmm. the one who's bringing it up. It wouldn't be a problem if, it, if you weren't attacking me all the time or, or suggesting I'm drunk. Mm -hmm. They would turn it around so you would think, well, I'm just not going to say anything. I don't want to fight. I don't. Right. I just don't want to battle with it. But you know, you have to stick to your guns. You right. have to. You have to know what's wrong and not give in. And Mary, you work a lot with kids. So, do you have anything here that that we should add? I want to go back to what she mm -hmm. said about living around her, and I wanted to share an a personal experience that that I had growing up, and I didn't really think about it until this came up. And I had a cousin, and she was married to a gentleman who was an alcoholic. And every weekend, he would get drunk on Friday night, and he would come home and pull off his clothes, and he would be in, just laying out on the sofa naked. Well, as children, <laughs> this, as children, we never knew he was naked. We didn't know he was, I didn't know, I had been, my mother would drop me off on the weekend for them to keep me. And I didn't know, I, I think maybe five years, I found, I found out by accident that he was naked. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> I never knew that he, we were living around him. He was just naked, and so nobody cared. We, yeah, but he, <laughs> we, he was asleep, and and so if he was asleep, because we would sit on the porch until he passed out, and then once he passed out, then we went in the house. That's, that's how his wife would do. We and, and the kids were glad because we liked to play outside in the dark. But the end of the story, when I found out he was naked five years later, there was an incident in the front yard, and we were sitting on the porch. And his wife said, go in, because uh, some kids jumped on an old man in the yard. And his wife said, go in the house and get him and tell him that they're trying to kill this old man out here in the yard. Well, he came outside naked. <laughs> oh, and, the, and the two teenagers looked up and they said, oh, my God, he's got a gun. And he's naked. <laughs> And that's when we found out he was naked. That's so, incredible. You know, you do that, and and, and that's incredible. Because when she said we lived around him, I, I just talked about that story uh, the other day. Um, because you do, you live around, and you just when they get quiet and out of your way, and they're not antagonizing you. Okay, he's in his place. He's in his happy place. Then we do what we do. And that's what we were doing. We would stay on the porch until he allowed us to come in. But alcoholism in families, they promote a lot of damage to children. People mm -hmm. do not realize the damage that children go through. Uh, if it's a female and the father's an alcoholic and you have been not been honest about it, even though she says she'll either... Uh, hate every man that drinks just a little bit or she'll look for someone who patterns after the father because uh, you're going to look for what your coping skills will work with mm -hmm. so if you're used to being abused that's why people say I don't understand why you keep going back to someone who's going to beat you up because that's what you're used to right. so we it's easier for us to work defective than try to change it's very difficult to change well because it's scary it's, it's scary new. right and it's painful so mm -hmm. it's easy for me to work warped you right. know so but I, I i just thought about that the, i thought that was phenomenal when she said okay we, <laughs> we, he lived around him and we lived around my cousin's husband because we never knew he was naked five years never knew he was naked <laughs> so in for all practical purposes if they didn't cause problems they're pretty much dead <laughs> and so what i what i want you listeners to understand is if you come in for counseling and you would tell me or another therapist that you have a great marriage except for this alcohol i would have a problem with that because you can't have a, a relationship a loving relationship with an addict of any kind because you don't know that person without their addiction in other words however hmm. long the addiction's been going on you may believe you have a great relationship with an addict but they're under the influence and so i'm i'm confused about how you could have a relationship with someone who wasn't transparent and available to love you um, the other thing that i that i really loved about this carla is that you talked about making the place a safe place when he came home because, um, Mary, you'll probably be able to contribute more to this too, but where I see a lot of the problem is when the addict comes home, the, the person that has been supportive but not an enabler, many times that's so painful living with that new person because they now have to recreate their marriage too. 
because it, now the the alcoholic is clean and and not an addict anymore. They're in the recovery process. So when you said that about a safe place, I I just love that and I love that word because it seemed like you embraced that you had to change also. Well, uh, that was one of his biggest concerns was that I didn't really know who he was Mm -hmm. because uh, through counseling he realized he was coping a lot and that's what he used alcohol for, to cope with his inner demons. Mm -hmm. And so he didn't think I knew who he was, although I did. I mean, we had several years of marriage before the alcoholism kind of took hold. Right. So I had to convince him that I... I do like who he is, who mm-hmm. he really is. I didn't really like the drunk. I liked the guy who was sober. Mm-hmm. And but it, and, and I was encouraged by his uh, rehab place that I should empty the house. And that was no problem for me at all. I took all the booze and took it and gave it out to friends and family who didn't have a problem. Right. And just didn't ever drink in front of him until probably a couple years later, and I finally asked him if it was okay if I could have a glass of wine in his presence, you know, mm-hmm. when we went out to dinner or something. It was a very slow transition for me to make, mm-hmm. to be comfortable drinking in front of him because right. I wanted him to be successful. Right. We and were, and you said that you, that you told him many times that you applauded his courage to go through with this. And this is when I share your story with other couples, and I do all the time because I think it's phenomenal, the the partner will tell me, you know, I didn't know how much that would mean to them to tell them frequently, you know, I'm really proud of you. Because they, it's like they're getting more support for making this really, it is a difficult decision. Well, it is difficult, and they are they are in control of their sobriety. I have no control. I had no control over his drinking or not drinking. It really, he had to understand it was all up to him. Maybe he did it for for reasons for me, but I had to recognize I had no control over his sobriety and give that over to him and give him credit for carrying it out, which, you know, I think most people think, well, you know, he did it for me. Well, maybe, but he still did it. Yes. That's the key. He did it. And I like that you didn't take ownership of it because a lot of women, especially, and Mm -hmm. this is if the the guy is the addict, but it can work both ways. ways. Mm -hmm. But I think women have a tendency to really um, embrace that part when the alcoholic or the addict is telling them, it's your fault. It's your fault I'm drinking. It's your fault I'm beating on you. It's your fault I'm overeating. And the the person they're married to many times says, you know what? Maybe it is. Mm-hmm. They start. They really they get that in their soul. Yes. yes. So when they come out of the treatment, for you, the spouse, to say, you know, this is your decision, and you have full control. I will try to continue to be supportive, but but I can't. I can't keep you sober, or I can't keep you alcohol or whatever your addiction is free you have to do this i love that that's a position of strength and yet support although i did recognize them for for quite a long time every time i'd go home i still had anxiety Mm -hmm. it took a long time to get over that what Mm -hmm. what was going to be waiting for me was he going to fall off the wagon you know i i i had to recognize that there 
was still anxiety and there would continue to be. It wasn't instantaneous. Everything's great now. Right. It was a process for both of us. How long has he been recovered now? 13 years. And you said he still celebrates each anniversary? Yes. Do you also? Yes. Okay, so you guys do something special on that? Well, we don't necessarily do something special, but we verbalize that we've hit that mark again. Wow. And so it's nice. And he, you know, he... He was happily collecting his coins. He was really liked that, you mm-hmm. know, when he went to AA meetings. And those did help a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. I highly recommend people um, send uh, or encourage uh, somebody who has an addiction to go to those meetings. And if you don't find the one that suits you, find another one. Mm-hmm. Because he found, he, he tried out at several different groups, and he went to a couple of different groups. And mm-hmm. he, he would get something out of it. I really noticed through his recovery that those meetings really helped. Is that where he started, like, hobbies? Is that how he started, like, collecting coins? Because I know he's a coin fanatic. Right. No, he did that before. But oh, okay. this was just, I mean, it, it. he was able to talk to people about problems that I couldn't relate mm. to. Mm. And that was very helpful for him. It'd be mm-hmm. helpful, I mean, if you can imagine for anybody, if you're talking to somebody, maybe maybe like a soldier who comes back, nobody else can relate to okay. him like another soldier, soldier does right. who's who right. recognized the same thing. It's similar for alcohol or any kind of an addict, I would mm-hmm. imagine. It's got to be about the same. So right. those meetings are critical. Right. So Mary, can you talk a little bit more about the meetings and the groups and things like that that you recommend? Well, AA, CA, all of those groups, what you have to do is find that group that has has the, the type of people that you need to hear from because they go from various levels. And um, if you're a professional, you want to find a group that has a lot of professionals in it whereby they can talk about, okay, these are the losses that I had in my career because that gives you something to identify with and gives you something to motivate you to say, okay, I don't want to go the way of this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes... Um, the churches have organizations that you can go to that can help you. It just depends on what you need and what type of social interactions you need or or even just that personal interactions, just like they could relate to things that she could not. I mean, she could not relate to being drunk uh, and passed out for two days. Uh, what does it feel to be blacked out in your car, which she probably never knew to be blacked out in his car and didn't know where he was. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of things, when when those realities come, there's a scripture that says the truth will set you free, and he that is free is free indeed, because now you are looking at yourself. You're no longer looking at the Carlers and Marys and the Mary Joes in the world. You're looking at yourself, and you're coming to grips with yourself. And the thing that I like about her, I just really cannot praise her enough. The thing that I like about this is because she was willing to grow and evolve with I him love that. out of his addiction. Well, uh, she she was at one point, she was, I heard at one point, I heard her when she said, okay, I was trying to control and control, I was trying to control the drinking. Only the addict, only the addicted person can control that. So she was able to have develop insight to say, okay, the only thing I can control here is myself. So I'm going to work on myself. 
and I'm going to work with you as you work on yourself. And one of those things is understanding the boundaries and then understanding when the boundaries are not there because we're married. So your insight, I, I, I just, I mean, if women could really hear what you've done, it's phenomenal. And I can't give you enough Thank praises. You. It's just, just amazing I, I for her insight because you never get the inside. I had a family member who died uh, last year, and he had been an alcoholic for the last 20 years, but nobody ever wanted to say it. And the thing about it is that he was a minister. Oh, that happens a lot. And the people never that. knew. Mm -hmm. He's He was a minister, and people never knew, but he was drunk every day except Sunday. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and people don't believe that yeah. alcoholism can go like that. You can have binge drinkers and all of that. So, uh, Getting involved with people that have like issues. Find a group that uh, that provides in uh, you know feedback on like issues, like pains, like problems. Find mm -hmm. those people and get with those people and stick with those people. It doesn't matter uh, where the where it is. Just get there and 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 give. Just open up. And, you know, and that's the hardest thing for people to who are addicted is to open up because as soon as you try to start to open them open them up then they become angry and rageful but you know I've learned how to deal with the rage over the years because I realized in my own life you know addictions are um uh, come in all colors mm -hmm. you know all shapes and all yep. sizes and I was addicted to anger mm -hmm. and when I realized that anger was the thing that separated me from a godly life I was like, okay, but what will I replace it with? So no matter what your addiction is, you've got to open up and you've got to confess that you have an issue and that you want to change. And until you do that, no matter how much she wanted him to change, it didn't come until he said, okay, I can do this. So you've got to admit that you have an addiction. You've got to say, I want to change, and you've got to stick to it. Right. I, I just love that, Mary, and I fully embrace that. You know, I, I go back to my own, just what I believe spiritually, that God is the Alpha and the Omega. So God always was, always will be. He's a constant. And we as humans decide whether we're going to be close to him or far from him, and we're fickle. We kind of move back and forth. Mm -hmm. But without getting into religion, I really want to talk about the spiritual journey mm -hmm. because, you know, Carla, your story is a spiritual journey. Mm -hmm. And Mary, I'm sure you use that because a lot of getting over any addiction is a 12-step process. Mm -hmm. I, I work with the morbidly obese, and they all have food addictions, mm -hmm. and, the, and I do a 12-step food addiction program for them. Mm -hmm. So I kind of want to talk about the importance of embracing your spirituality as, as not only the spouse, but how, to, how you could best um, encourage the addict to get help if you, if you approached it from a spiritual point. How would, what would that look like and what would that mean? Well, if you're going to approach a person, what I generally do, I'd I, I rather for them to approach me. Mm -hmm. Because when you approach them, then they become guarded. Uh, there are times when, it's, I, and I can't even tell you what the magic bullet is, but there are times when you can meet a person and you can know that that person needs to hear from you. It's just instinctive. And that's the spiritual part of it for me, is to know that I'm here for you. And 
it's time. And then there are times when you look at a person and you know that person needs your help, but you know they're not ready. And you don't want to push them further back into what they're, what they're doing, so you just wait. So some kind of way, in the spirit, some kind of way, when they have been, become sick and tired, of being sick and tired, you know, and you and, and and it's just uncanny. You're there, and you say, okay, and they'll start, and they may fight you, but most of the fight is gone, and you can get through. But you don't judge, you don't uh, compare. You know, this is about you right now, and I understand your pain. I can't feel it, but I understand it. Yeah. So share it because I'm not here to judge you. So it's just. Just being there at that time. And somehow, spiritually, you draw what you need. If you need an abusive man, you're going to draw one. If you need help, you're going to draw it. You just have to accept it when it comes. That's. I think that's so true. Can you think of anything, Carla, that helped you hang on? And Well, one of the things uh, that I learned that was very valuable was don't talk to him about it until he's sober. (laughs) You cannot approach and try to have a rational conversation with somebody who's drunk, even though that is instinctually what you want to do because you want to approach them when they're making you angry, which is when they're drunk. Mm -hmm. But that is futile. So, so when you work. did approach him, what, what did you want? What, what was the delivery? What did you need him to know? Well, I needed to, I, I needed him to know how I felt about his drinking and that I really wanted him to go into counseling and we would have those very rational discussions uh, when he was sober the mm-hmm. next day I had to learn to wait wait mm-hmm. <laughs> which is really okay. hard because mm-hmm. initially you know we would have the fights and the 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 angry you know episodes and stuff like that but uh, I learned that through counseling that I could not talk to him and, and they were right the mm-hmm. conversations never went well yeah. if it happened while the person was drunk or on pills or whatever, whoever, whatever that addiction problem is. When they're mm-hmm. in the midst of it, you can't have a rational discussion. You have to wait until there's a calmer, right. uh, more settled time to have it. Carla, where are your kids now, like with the whole thing? What is their memory, or do they have a memory much about it? Or My daughter really doesn't remember at all, and mm-hmm. my son remembers very little also. I think they do remember going to rehab to visit him. They don't remember it as being anything traumatic though. They just remember going there. Mm -hmm. And my son remembers probably hearing fights, Mm -hmm. which we did have early on. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, he would hear, he'd be in his bedroom. I never tried to have him when they were around. And that was another thing that he would do. He would have a, he would pick a, if I wanted to talk to him about his drinking, he would pick a fight which he knew I wouldn't have within earshot of the kids. Wow. So that would shut So they're manipulative. That would shut Very. me down from mm-hmm. having a fight because he would raise his voice even though I was talking in a calm manner, he would raise it up a few levels knowing full well I would shut down and not fight mm-hmm. because I didn't want the kids to hear it. And he, yes, very, very manipulative. Become very protective of the addiction, mm-hmm. and yes. you have to you have to work your way around it. That's why it's no point in having a fight with somebody who's drunk, because mm-hmm. you're not going to win 
and they're not going to remember it. Exactly. Right. <laughs> wow. Exactly. So we've got time. We've got about five minutes left. I want to talk a little bit about what each of you would advise if someone confided in you right now that they that they were married to an addict or that they would that they were an addict. What 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 are three things each of you could really think that they would really need to know to act on? Well, I would say first of all that the people should be honest. They should be honest with their family, with themselves. Um, seek all the help you can get, and mm-hmm. if that includes family, if your family is part of the problem, then you got to seek help elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But you should. Uh, open communication, and you should definitely seek counseling. I mean, I just don't know very many people who could successfully work their way through whatever drove them to becoming an addict. I just don't think there's much of a success rate for that. You guys would speak more to that, but I just can't imagine there's, I -hmm. I don't think we would have been successful without it Mm -hmm. because it was a learning process for both of us. Right. Right. Well, thanks, Carla. And and Mary, what would you say? Uh, Yeah, I agree with Carla. I think that, you know, you should focus on trying to get some counseling. Um, You know, don't run what people tend to do, especially if they're dealing with an addict, they run to everybody uh, looking for some help and looking for for validation for them being an enabler. You know, um, so don't do that. Sit down and process where you are in this situation and admit out loud, I am the enabler, I am the addict, whatever the case may be. First, you have to commit that. I mean, you have to admit that to yourself. So be open, be honest, as, as Carla said. I mean, I can't really add a lot to that because you, you need counseling. You need to admit that you are where you are and that you're really, truly willing to do something about it. And if you are the enabler or the person that's dealing with an addictive process, always know that you cannot change the other person. The only person you can change is you. So start working on you, and then you can make more definitive decisions about whether you want to work with the relationship or whether you want to leave the relationship. But you have to be objective in making those decisions. So, right. you, so both parties need counseling. Exactly. And I I think what also when I hear Mary and Carla, what I really want all of you listeners to understand is if you are in an abusive relationship, it doesn't matter if if, if the abuse is coming from an addict or not. You need to get yourself safe. You need to to take the kids with you. You need to have a, a safe place to go and make those arrangements. You you need to have your bag packed. And if you're worried that that he and most abusers are males, up to I think it's like 94% of all abusers are male. If if you're afraid to leave when he's there, then make sure you make a plan so that when he's sleeping or he's at work, you have your stuff packed and then you take the kids. And the best thing you can tell your kids is that daddy isn't well right now and you need to find safety. And safety is a wonderful word because it makes the kids feel loved. It makes them feel like they can trust you and you will not do damage defaming their other parent and that's so important the other thing i really want all of you to hear is you cannot fix an addict you can sit down with them and be honest when they're not drinking like carla and mary said 
But when you're honest with them, if they want to fix the problem, it's a good idea to list three, three reasons. That can be the marriage, that can be one another, that can be the children, that can be for the addict's parents. It doesn't matter what the reason is as long as they're committed to the reason. And lastly, if you are an enabler, then you should seek counseling first because many times the counselor's objective and they can help guide you further so that the, you're going to, this is a long process. Like Carla was saying, it took years mm-hmm. in therapy. And, so, I, and I did go first. You're and right. you did mm-hmm. go first. Yeah, That's great because mm-hmm. what happens is you when you are in the middle of an addictive relationship, you will feel like you are part of the problem. And you may be if you're enabling it. But the only way to figure out your part is to talk to an objective person. If you don't like the counselor that you choose or you go and that counselor makes you feel belittled or they they seem arrogant or hard to talk to, then don't go back Mm -hmm. because there's so many counselors and not every counselor is great. Some of them are not great for your problem and some of them are great, but they're not great with your personality. So don't ever feel guilt about that. You wanna find someone who can work with you directly. And lastly, what I would say is I would, in my own life, if this happened, and I would encourage anybody, hang on to your concept of God, whatever that is, Mm -hmm. because you can go through a lot of things if you can talk to a creator that created you and feel like you have some support. And for me, God does that. And I think if you started talking and building a relationship with your concept of God, it, it would probably make you stronger no matter what route you take. So, um, gosh, I've just been so honored to be with you, Carla and Mary. And um, Carla, how do we get a hold of you? Should any of the listeners need your advice or talk to you further about um, Do you I, have a website or anything mm, that you not really? No. I, okay. Okay. Well, what I would encourage you listeners to do then is just go ahead and go to maryjoerapini.com. It'll say contact Mary Jo. And then when you contact me, if you want to write something to Carla, I can pass it on to Carla. And that, that would probably work better anyway, because most of your questions are going to have a counseling part, which I could take care of, and then a part for Carla. And I promise I won't read it unless you want me to. I'm, I'm very good about confidentiality. <laughs> and then Mary, let's talk more about Mary Wiley. Tell us how we can get a hold of you. And You can write me at Mary Terry Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y, at AOL.com. And I'll respond. So, do you have a website, Mary? Uh, TamarEntertainmentInc.com. Can you spell that? T A M A R Entertainment Inc. I N C dot com. Okay, and thank you very much, Mary, for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's It's just been been wonderful, and I I think we've really helped a lot of people, and since that's all three of our intentions, um, it's a great day. So thanks for tuning in. Don't forget, this is number nine of a series of 12 podcasts all about you, your relationship, intimacy, and sexuality. Have a super day. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Don't forget, you can tweet me at Mary Jo Rapini, and if you can do that, um, today or any day, that's great. And Facebook at Mary Jo Rapini on Facebook, and then it's MaryJoRapini.com. Thank you.